Hi, folks, it's Rick Wilson, and welcome to The Daily Beast's The New Abnormal. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, a left-wing pundit and editor-at-large at The Daily Beast. I'm also an editor at The Daily Beast, a former Republican political strategist, best-selling author, and full-time troublemaker. We're here to have fun, sharp conversations with some of the smartest people in media, politics, business, and science that help make what's happening in the country and the world clearer. I'll try to keep Rick to the minimum number of F-bombs and try to keep our kids kids, pets, and other wildlife sounds from invading our respective bunkers. Hi, Rick Wilson. Hello, Molly Jongfast. How's your uh, experience today in the wild hellscape that is New York, a city I am told reliably by our president that is currently in flames? Roaming the streets are black-clad Antifa thugs on the one hand, cannibal radioactive mutants on the other, and a small vestige of proud Trump supporters riding through the streets in their pickup trucks. That's right. You know, um, my Antifa, the Antifa that walks down my streets tends to take net jets because they are a very discerning group and they don't fly commercial. So this sort of a, an artisanal Antifa, if you will. Yes, artisanal Antifa. I don't know. I have yet to see any burning or any rioting, but I was told on the internet by a few conservative Twitter accounts that clearly I am at fault and I am too privileged. And if only I would go somewhere else, I would see burning. But, you know, a lot of my friends have sent me pictures, too, which show sort of beautiful spring days and people eating outside. So who are you going to believe, conservative media or your eyes? Well, I mean, Molly, obviously those photos are all photoshopped. Yes, And obviously. they're all sent here by the Soros deep state lizard people conspiracy to trick you. It's the only answer that makes sense. But at least our president is standing up for law, order, justice, and stability by saying he's going to cut off federal funding to, what was it, lawless areas? I think it was, didn't anarchy come into that? It may have come into that. Anarchist Anarchist jurisdictions. jurisdictions. What I love about a Trump executive order is that they are so shoddily written that they almost never get, they almost always get overturned almost immediately. That's sort of the hallmark of Trump's. I believe using the phrase, suck it, libtards, as the opening uh, salutation in most of them (laughs) really is a difficult thing for most jurists when they're appraising the legal validity of the president's orders. Also, when they say the purpose of this executive order is to produce liberal tears, it again also (laughs) tends to minimize the import and scope and power of said things. Although, you know, I must say, if we're going to talk about lawless areas, I, this morning, was driving my car using my cell phone without hands-free. You didn't get arrested. I didn't, but I'm expecting the feds to swoop in any moment to uh, declare my town to be a lawless area, a region of anarchy. But what's interesting to me about this is cities are the new caravan, right? So in the midterms. Nice. Nicely put. Trump like world, it. right? Well, the Trump world, Fox News would say, you know, there's a caravan coming. It's filled with, uh, you know, people who want to come and take your jobs and, you know, whatever. And now that never worked. It didn't work in 2016. It didn't work in 2018. So now they've decided that it's cities are filled with rioting liberals wearing black who are looting. And, and it's the same weird scare tactic. Not just cities, but airplanes. <laughs> Why are they on airplanes? I will say this. I mean, look, the airline industry is struggling. Yes, and so it's true. given the president's overall adherence to the broken windows make for a great economy theory, wouldn't you think that having Antifa traveling across the country on the behest of whatever dark and mysterious forces pay for the Antifa, wouldn't you think it'd be 
better? I mean, it's, you're helping the airline industry. You're helping the local construction industries. I mean, this could be a win for the president. Maybe this is his October surprise. The Antifas are really led by Don Jr. and Kimberly, and they're going to pull off their ski mask at the last minute. It'll be like a whole like Scooby-Doo ending. Biden shaking his fist like, I would have won, but for those meddling kids and their presidential father. <laughs> the thing I thought was interesting about this Antifa Airlines thing is, you know, airlines are notoriously strict about taking weapons on them. So as I'm well aware, <laughs> Yes. Oh, good. <laughs> Rick can, can provide a little first-person experience with this, but they're actually really strict. So would the Antifa fly without the weapons and then be given weapons when they got there? I mean, there's so many holes in this theory. And then I recently read yesterday that this was actually cooked up by the broken brain of... No. That's what I read, that, it, that this idea had first been germinated and discussed by... Was it Devin Nunes? It was Devin Nunes. Okay, you did get something wrong there, though. Nothing can germinate in the brain of Devin Nunez. It is barren <laughs> soil. It is infertile. It is as if the sun had baked every nutrient out of a barren, bitter desert. Um, Who but gives Devin that, Nunez the ideas? Is it that staff? It's that guy, Derek fucking Harvey. Who is Derek Harvey? <sighs> Derek Harvey is a former Flynn guy, a former DIA guy, a wackadoodle-doo, nutjob job completely batshit Muslim conspiracist. Molly, I think one of the things, remember we had that great conversation with Miles Taylor, former chief of staff at DHS, and he said that all the adults are gone. Every every grown-up is out of the room. Trump is being let run buckwild through the White House. He says something now, and then instead of saying, Mr. President, we can't do that, as maybe John Kelly would have in the beginning, or Mr. President, that's not a great idea, as maybe Mick Mulvaney would say. Now, when the president says, I want to decapitate every third Antifa protester and ride around with their head mounted on a spike on the front of my limo, Mark yeah, Meadows is great. like, Mark Meadows is like, I'll call the spike installer, sir. <laughs> there is no control over his behavior. I just wrote a piece for the Beast about this this morning, basically saying, you know, if you think it's bad today, wait until we get a little closer because it's, it's pretty gonna, bad today. It's gonna go sideways. It's gonna get really bad and really vicious and really ugly. And anybody who thinks that it's going to get better or that the president is going to say, maybe I should calm down in order to win. No, none of that's going to work. It's going to get much, much darker. Hard to imagine, but very likely. I mean, we heard that guy from, was it HSS who got pushed out, which was really <laughs> pretty fucking tragic, say that this is going to be the darkest winter American modern life between the coronavirus and the flu. And then we have President Looney tunes. Yeah, well, I mean, and we have we have a lot of people on the right around Trump who are starting to feel the pressure and are starting to feel the ugliness of a Trump collapse. We're seeing it in a lot of the swing states that the numbers are are bad. And so at, every time Trump feels something going wrong, he tries to blow things up to change the subject. He is going to try to blow shit up in the next few days to try to get this thing reset because he failed in Kenosha. It was an embarrassment for him. And most things he does now are an embarrassment. And this base-only strategy, you know, today he's going to a town in Pennsylvania where he wants up by something like 36% of the vote. So he's going to he beat Hillary by 36%. So he's going to be going deeper and deeper into his little binky bunker 
where he's with his <laughs> with the friendly people who like him, and they're going to give him the adoration he wants. But the rest of the world around him is still falling apart, and he's going to keep getting this dissonance. It's going to get louder and uglier in the, as the weeks go on, which I love. <laughs> well, one of us has to love it. Oh, I can't take it. Oh, yeah, Rick, let's talk about your ratings ad for a minute, because it did get a presidential tweet. It got a presidential tweet. and it- Every time you do an ad that gets a presidential tweet, it's mandatory that we talk about it. An angel gets its wings. It's angel. That's right. Angel gets a pack of birth control pills. Right. Something like that. I don't have the tape in front of me, but we could play it. We It works pretty well just on tape. So, Jesse, you want to just drop it in? Uh-oh, Donald. Bad news. The ratings are in fear convention. It's not pretty. Biden had better ratings than the president last night. Joe Biden beat you by a lot. The TV president, the reality TV president who sold himself as a showman. Below uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And these two. Is yet to come. Embarrassing. Democrats beat you in ratings every night, except one. When your wife was giving a speech. Ouch. That's got to be awkward at the dinner table. Even Fox said you were low energy. It didn't seem to have the bite. He was, I think, a little flat. We know it's different now. You're tired. It's hard to keep your ratings up. You used to get applause. Now, get ready to hear. You're fired. Project is responsible for the content of this advertising. But yeah, look, we have become the anthropologists of shit. And we understand who Donald Trump is, and we understand that he is obsessing right now about both ratings and polls. He was furious. You know, we have people that talk to us from inside the White House, inside the campaign. And by the way, it started out with like with like a single source each. Now it's like people like beating the door down. Hey, can I tell you something? I got I got to brief you guys on something. That's <laughs> crazy. That is pretty great. But with all these things. You know, we we kept hearing he's really pissed about it. He's really pissed about it. So of course we generate a spot, and it gets right into his head. And the girl who does the voiceover, who we're not going to identify, but ha- she has a tone with him that is just just maddening, apparently for him. So it's another week where we've got this guy where his brain is broken for us, and he's obsessing and he's tweeting about the Lincoln Project instead of going after Joe Biden. So God bless America. My work here is done. <laughs> How many times are you going to vote in this election, Rick Wilson? Well, I have been reliably told the lawmaker. You mean President Law and Order? By President Law and Order, and of course by Judge Dredd, his interior minister. Oh, yes. That's right. I know him well. That voting twice, just to quote, check the system, is okay. In every state, it's illegal. In some states, it's a felony. And in all the states that Donald Trump wants to have voters come out, it's illegal. And in some of those, it's a felony. And of course, now, there will be MAGA dipshits who go out and go, I'm going to cast my absentee ballot, then I'm going to show those libtard cucks, I'm going to go vote in the voting booth. <laughs> well, and some of them may get away with it. But this is, once again, the ironic thing about a guy who's supposedly running on the on the law and order platform being a lawless, orderless hack. And of course... Say what you really feel. I know, I know. I, I keep so much in. I know. It's I, just, like, I really need to share. Yeah, that's right. You need to be unfettered. Rick after dark. Hello? <laughs> 
Well, hello, Molly. Hello, audience. <laughs> all right. All right. Go back to talking what you're talking about. Go, go. All right. All right. I've started something <laughs> terrible. Please right, yes. put the GE back in the bottle. How, Let's go. How often does that happen? I've started something terrible. But and then Bill Barr, of course, came out and said, well, what the president meant to say was fuck you. Because Bill Barr, you know, is an absolute servant of Donald Trump. He is his he is his lackey, and he will defend anything he says, no matter how lawless. And so here we are again. Lawless president, lawless interior minister, and it, it shouldn't surprise anybody, though. Now, I will say what this also represents, and we're hearing this inside the Republican campaign world and the consultant world, inside and out of Trump. They're freaking the fuck out. Because the secret sauce of Republican elections all over this fucking country for years was we were really good at getting early early ballots in. We were really good at absentee voting and early voting and mail voting operations. We're really good at it. And now the base of the Republican Party are telling these guys, Mr. Trump says voting by mail is dangerous. It will lead to Antifa and uh, and scrofula. And also, I will not be able to maintain an erection with my lady friend. So I cannot I cannot vote by mail. And so these fucking people are not going to vote by mail because Trump kept telling them, don't vote by mail. It's dangerous. And so Republican, But he also told them to vote twice. I know. But look, consistency is not his strong suit. But these folks are out there. And, and the, like I said, the Republican consulting class is in a panic because early voting used to be their secret sauce. And now- not so much because the president took a shit in the punch bowl. So do you think that this ends up backfiring on Trump, on Republicans? <laughs> Just checking. <laughs> so should we vote more than once? I, I'm, I missed the punchline here. Well, the old phrase of vote early and often. Right, exactly. It's something I would never recommend because I'm a law-abiding citizen. <laughs> That's right. Brian Stelter is the host of CNN's Reliable Sources, and the author of Hoax, Donald Trump, Fox News, and the Dangerous Distortion of News. Well, Brian, welcome to The New Abnormal. We are so delighted to have you on with us today. And I wanted to start with something that came up on your show this weekend about the Facebook bubble. And while we talk a lot about news and media, I think it's incumbent upon all of us to like dig into what's happening to a lot of Americans where they've stopped going through any kind of media except for the stuff their friends and the Facebook shovels into their feed every day that doesn't come from actual reporting, but they interpret it as news. Where do you see that as influencing the future where we go in this country in terms of media? Right. These outrage machines do cause a form of radicalization. And we have to talk about this in the language that it, that it warrants, which is radicalization. When your feed tells you every hour that the cities are burning when they are not, when you're seeing month-old video of something that happened on one street corner, I do think you end up going down a rabbit hole that leads to radicalization. It leads to isolation. It leads to this sense of, um, I need someone to protect me from all these threats, which of course is a narrative that President Trump promotes. And uh, I do think Facebook and Twitter have responsibility for this, just like Fox News and, and just like The Daily Caller. You know, it's it's both pro-Trump media as well as these platforms that feed off amplifying these scary messaging. Yep. Do you think that this problem comes back to the death of local news? I think it's a related problem, but I think this is also deeper about people's reactions to imagery and what happens when people press the fear button over and over 
over again. There's a book that I loved many years ago by Barry Glasner, um, all about the culture of fear. And, you know, he wrote it, I think, in the 90s, and it, it's feeling even more true now. It's called The Culture of Fear. And it, it's about why people are afraid of the wrong things, <laughs> meaning, and I think that's even, it's, it's just becoming more and more true in the internet age and the social media age, where we have these, these messages blasting us in, in our eyeballs every day. You wrote this book about Fox. Start with, like, when it was revealed you were writing this book. Did they come after you? Well, I think Sean Hannity and others used me as a punching bag even before I announced the book. And that continued during the reporting process. And I tried to use that to my advantage. I sometimes gained sources by pointing out the BS <laughs> that these guys were spreading about me. I swear that really actually came in handy several times in the course of the reporting. In terms of feeling targeted, I, I did not feel any more targeted than I felt before I started working on the book. You know, I, I tried to do all the right things. I tried to let Fox know ahead of time before the announcement. I, I tried to let sources know ahead of time. You know, I, I tried to, to play as fair as possible and, and certainly in the, in the fact-checking process as well. But let, let me say this, when Sean Hannity calls you Humpty Dumpty, or Tucker Carlson calls you a eunuch in front of 4 million people. Your inbox fills up pretty quickly. Been to that rodeo. Yeah, I know your pain. <laughs> and there are most, most times I blow it off, but I do try to look at it once in a while with um, innocent eyes. <laughs> Just to remember what it's like for folks who are not used to this, what that avalanche of hate is like. You mean Arena Briganti isn't like an honest broker when it comes to trying to slag people writing about Fox? <laughs> if they're going to try to get me to say something <laughs> negative. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you what I've always said about Fox News PR, and I truly mean it. They defend their brand very, very well. And I got to respect that as, as someone who's a media reporter who covers all these companies. There have been times in the last 16 years where I've thought, geez, other networks, other media companies, I should play a little more hard the way Fox does. The danger there, though, is, of course, these horror stories from many years ago in a prior Fox regime where Fox PR was engaging in unethical behavior. And I describe a very amateur version of that in my book, where this Fox News PR intern is assigned to go and pretend to date me to try to get information about me. Oh now, that God. happened uh, under a different PR leader. But that kind of stuff, that's, un that's unacceptable. I think Fox is very effective at working the refs and playing the refs very effectively. So yeah, I, do, I write a newsletter at night for CNN, and almost every night, Fox News PR uh, sends out an email with a bunch of stories, suggested stories for the newsletter. Now, I think they do this for other newsletters, other reporters as well. That's a very smart thing to do. I've always said I wished other outlets would do the same thing. Do I usually find the links anyway? Sure. Uh, do I skip most of them? Sure. But it's helpful. They are very good at what they do, and I, and I think it's important in hoax to acknowledge what Fox does that is very effective business wise, very effective, production wise, very effective. Just look at their screen. I, I, I swear, I think it's brighter than the other channels. I think it, it is. I, almost like candy. It, it catches your eye. Well, that was always part of their sort of graphic vernacular that Roger was very into, which was big, bold color, splash, movement. You know, the, as the CGI got better from 96 on when they opened the doors, you know, you've always got a gigantic, like, busy, busy, busy screen happening all the time with lots of lots of animation and logos and everything else. Yeah, there's a lot that I appreciate from a television standpoint about Fox. Where the network is falling down right now is, is on the journalistic front. And, and the reason I had to write the book is because so many journalists of Fox were coming to me saying that. So what I try to relay in the book is this is not my view of Fox. You know, I'm just a viewer. What this is about is producers, anchors, correspondents, and executives saying to me, we've gone off the rails. Our news muscles have atrophied. Our propaganda muscles have taken over. The management seems to want pro-Trump pro propaganda and discourage real reporting. And, and that's ultimately the problem. Wh who do you think is the worst offender? Oh, boy. 
Well, what's worse, Defender Me? You mean the most propagandistic? Like the example to you yeah. of the. Does where? it rhyme with Shucker Farlson? I think the way to measure this is, <laughs> is by the guests that are booked. And there are certain shows on Fox that book Democrats and Republicans, and there are certain shows on Fox that engage in, in limited amounts of fact checking. But then you have Sean Hannity's show, Maria Bartiromo's show, Janine Pirro's show. You know, these are these are programs that swear the sky is green when it's blue. Yeah. I've noticed Fox business seems to have a different standard. Um, a lower or higher standard? <laughs> Guess. <laughs> well, Fox Business is best known for Lou Dobbs. Lou Dobbs is by far the highest rated host on the channel. Even though his ratings are quite low, he's by far the biggest star there. And as a result, you have others like Trish Regan, who was forced out in March, who try to be like Lou. Try to be like Lou Dobbs. I, I don't think any journalism professor would go out and tell you, go be like Lou Dobbs. Brian, do you think that other networks have the same kind of culture inside that Fox does? I, I My view is that they don't, because even on, people think of MSN as sort of a counterweight to Fox, but I don't see the same sort of unified cultural, the sort of bunker thing that, that Fox has is so unique to, to other networks. Well, the, the positive thing I would say about the culture is that people feel like it's a family. They feel like it's us against the world. Staffers told me how much they appreciated that feeling of being about something bigger and important. So there's that. However, <laughs> there's also a lot of low morale there right now because of a lack of strong leadership, a, a lack of a clear vision. What's happened is the vision is just lean into Trump. You know, as one staffer said, the place is on cruise control and has been ever since Roger Ailes was forced out. I think it is very different from MSNBC or CNN or ABC or the others because, you know, it's, it's a series of fiefdoms. It's a series of, of individual shows. There's not a lot of narrative that follows through as a network, although obviously things like Law & Order, those permeate everything. But there, there's not a, I think right now, one of the tensions internally is, what are we here for? What are we working on? So I interviewed someone who, this it's not ready for primetime, but she said that in some ways it was less scary, and this runs counter to everything I have ever thought in my life, <laughs> was less scary under Roger Ailes because you knew where you stood. Yeah, I hate to say it, but a lot of people there miss Roger Ailes. It's crazy to hear as an outsider, but when I heard it so many times from sources, I started to believe it really is a, a, a common feeling because at least he was a strong leader. At least you knew who the boss was and you knew where you stood. Unfortunately, he used that power to abuse women, abuse his power. Thankfully, the Murdochs took action in 2016. But ever since, there's been a leadership vacuum there. I think they've got executives that are doing a great job running the business because the business is more profitable than ever. But editorially, there's something missing. And in, in this way, it's not so different from the Trump White House. You have a lot of people not that happy at a place that's chaotic who choose to stay because they, they hope they can make it better, hope they can make it saner. Uh, and some eventually leave because they can't take it anymore. Speaking of the Murdochs, what do you think about, I mean, look, the, the actuarial tables will get all of us eventually unless Rupert can upload himself <laughs> into the cloud. What do you think the transition looks like? Uh, my theory has always been people who hold out hope that like, oh, James and Lachlan aren't like their dad. They're da, da, da. My theory has always been these guys are never walking away from equity. They're never walking well, away from- James is out. I, I know. But this idea that, that there's some sort of ch cultural change that will happen after Rupert passes, I just wanted to get your feeling on it. I'm a skeptic. <laughs> well, it's a cliffhanger in hoax because I am also partly skeptical. But, but here's what I do believe will happen. I do believe that in the event Rupert Murdoch dies, there will be a battle over the future of the company because there's this trust. Uh, right now, there's eight votes in the trust. Rupert has four votes and the kids have four votes, so he wins. If and when he dies- there will be four votes from four children. And James Murdoch, the more liberal son who has purposely left News Corporation and Fox, he's purposefully, every step he takes, every move he makes seems to be in preparation for 
something bigger, maybe a takeover of Fox Corporation. So the theory goes like this. He has the support of his sisters, three votes versus one. He takes over Fox Corporation. Lachlan Murdoch, the more conservative brother, is out. And in that scenario, I think there could be a big change of Fox News. But I don't know. We're talking about five years, 10 years. I don't know what we're talking about. You know, we're not talking about 2020. I know that. Right. Look, Fox News has only gone in one direction for the last 24 years. Right further right, further right. That's the history of Fox News. For it to move in any other direction would be stunning. Is there any read in the book, and I'm looking forward to reading it, is there anything in the book about the role of Tucker Carlson himself? Because he seems like, I knew Tucker for years and years as sort of a nihilist asshole bro conservative. Hi, look in the mirror. There we go. But he has taken on this like white nationalist overtone in in a way that has become a touchstone for a lot of these people out there in the world who are on the like the alt right and the far right and the guys the boogaloo boy types etc. I, I have on on page uh, two fifteen uh, other hosts at Fox saying to me, "I wish management would ring Carlson in. I wish they'd make him drop the white supremacist shit because it tarnishes the entire network." But I think what people don't understand is he seems to have an alliance of sorts with Lachlan Murdoch. I'm not saying Lachlan agrees with every word Tucker says, but these are two men that seem to have a lot in common, that are close in age. They, you know, Pre-pandemic, they would meet up and have meals together when they were in the same city. He has this really important relationship with Lachlan, and I think that explains why to every controversy that happens, every time that, that there's some, some eruption, uh, Fox stands by Tucker. Mm-hmm. Now, what do you think? 2024? Because I do mention in the book. Oh, you no. Know, oh, no. Gonna, oh, no. Page 317, guys. Several of his colleagues think they could see Carlson on the primary ballot. After Lee Kimberly Guilfoyle murders Don Jr. in his sleep. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> the front runner for the 2024 Republican nomination is Tucker Carlson. God help me. He speaks fluent Trumpese. He's, he's actually the author of a lot of it, and I think he's the leader. So that actually leads me to another question about, about Tucker. The degree to which Tucker will tweet or say something on the air, and two days later it's Donald Trump's policy, I can't think of another television commentator who's had that kind of influence on a president in a very long time. No, this, this is unprecedented. This is why I could have written another 300 pages, because the examples are almost countless. Sometimes it's silly stuff. You know, sometimes the president tweets about Goodyear because of Fox, but other times he tweets about North Korea because of Fox. And, and there was that famous day when, when, you know, we were cocked and loaded, you know, as the president said, ready to fire on Iran, and Tucker Carlson was in Trump's ear. Now, Tucker wasn't the only one, but Tucker's voice was in Trump's ear, and uh, some staffers give him a lot of credit for talking the president down. I, I had a Fox commentator joke to me, well, if I had to choose, you know, Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, I guess I feel safer having Tucker in charge of the country than Sean. <laughs> yeah, well, that is a pretty low bar. We're so doomed. <laughs> Would you consider Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson to be the de facto leaders of Fox? Um, I would put that on to, to the folks I interviewed uh, at all levels who said it seems like Tucker and Sean are more managerial than the managers. Uh, and, and certainly some of them brag about their power. But, but I want to be clear. Obviously, there are actually executives. There are people in, in positions of power. There is a management team. It's just that I think that there's not a clear, strong um, leadership emanating from the top where there's accountability, all the sorts of things that you would expect from a major news network. But of course, that's if you look at it as a news network. If you look at it as a political operation that's intended to support the president, then 
you might say it's working really well, though I would argue they do the president a disservice. And I argue throughout the book that times where Hannity's trying to help Trump, he's hurting Trump. He is feeding the president bad information, sending him down rabbit holes, actually hurting the guy he's trying to help. So, you know, look, maybe we'll have a better sense of this in November. Did Fox really help the Trump presidency or did Fox ruin the Trump presidency? Oh, I think Donald Trump had the ability to ruin his presidency all along, but... There have been, certainly have been times they've given him a nice shove. So let me ask you this, and I know we've been on sort of a fox tear today. I want to loop back on that first question again. What does the future look like for cable news when this this migration to Facebook, especially of viewers, unfortunately, in the demo, you know, as these people continue to slide over to Facebook and say, well, I'll just look at Eagle Patriot MAGA Forum 9000 instead of watching CNN or MSN or, or ABC or NBC or CBS. What does that look like for, for journalism and for the media going forward? I, I just, I still feel like there's a disconnect. They don't have a pathway to address it or compete with it yet. To compete with hyperpartisan sites out there? Yeah, with the hyperpartisan, but with Facebook as the hyperpartisan aggregator of all these crazy sites. Right. The, the reason I'm more bullish about cable news is uh, I think there are, will always be times, there always are, and there always will be times where something really bad or something really good happens in the world. And you want to experience it on television. You want to see it on the biggest screen possible. You want to gather around with others and watch post-pandemic, of course. Right. You know, I, I look at our ratings and I see it. For example, viewers can tell when something is really actually breaking news, not when I, you know, called it breaking news. And I shouldn't have. <laughs> there are a lot of examples of this, but I always think about one from last year where uh, there was an actually serious earthquake in California. This was the Ridgecrest quake late at night on the East Coast uh, in the evening out West. And the ratings for CNN doubled within an hour. And, you know, that, that just speaks to the idea that when there's something actually big happening, people know where to go. And, and Fox benefits from this. To some degree, MSNBC benefits less, but all the cable news channels benefit from that sense of, of real, actual breaking news, you know, a trusted guide. And you're not going to get that from the Gateway Pundit, at least not any time in the first season. No way. <laughs> what? Now, that said, of course, these sites are really good at pressing people's buttons. They're too good at it. And I think they're only going to keep getting better at it. And I, I don't know if there's a solution to that in the cable world, but I think cable always is going to have this unique role to play with actually breaking news. Um, and then and then the rest of the time, hopefully we can provide something that's high quality, not low quality. You know, it, there's, a, there's a real wide uh, spectrum of content on cable news from Mark Levin <laughs> to, to Fareed Zakaria, right? And I hope folks are more interested in, in watching Fareed, not just because he's my lead in, than they are in watching, you know, the Jesse Waters uh, uh, gag show. You know? <laughs> it's interesting how Fox has turned to comedy in the Trump years. Uh, Greg Gutfeld, Jesse Waters, like when in doubt, just make fun of the news. But don't those guys seem like increasingly less funny and more, the owning the lib stuff is not <laughs> to my mind as comic as they think it is. Mm. But I certainly see them as they've become much more, more, much more partisan. There's a lot more partisan bitterness weeping through them. Bitterness. Well, they're also, I mean, both men are experts in the anti-media shtick. You know, their base, their base messages, you cannot trust anything else. It's one of the most cynical things about Fox and what I try to hit a bunch of times in the book, which is they're constantly saying to the viewers every day, do not trust anything but Fox and Trump. Do not, you're going to, you're going to be, you're going to be, you're going to be tricked if you turn the channel. The word hoax even, you know, when, when someone tells you there's a hoax every day, that someone's out to hurt you, that's extreme rhetoric. I, I know that in the, you know, we're all used to this in the Trump age, but people didn't use to talk this way. You know, even only a few years ago, we weren't divided into pro-Obama and anti-Obama or pro-Bush. Like, give me a, even the way we talk about this stuff has changed because of Trump. Hey, it's your delivered package. I'm on your doorstep freezing my cardboard flaps off while you're lounging in Bali. 
With Key by Amazon in-garage delivery, I could be safe and snug in your garage. Just link your MyQ account with Key by Amazon and hit free in-garage delivery at Amazon Prime Checkout. Get your garage door MyQ connected with the MyQ Smart Garage Control for $29. Use promo code KEY30. For a $30 credit after your first delivery, visit myq.com slash podcast. With Key by Amazon in-garage delivery, you'll soak in the sun and I won't soak in the rain. Hey, sleepyhead. Why so sleepy? Oh, it's because your mattress is a bag of potatoes and scrap metal. You should try a Nectar mattress. With award-winning layers of comfort, you can sleep easy knowing you got incredible value. Mattresses start at just $499, and you get hundreds of dollars in accessories thrown in, as well as a 365-night home trial and a forever warranty. Go to Nectarsleep.com. The New Abnormal is going to release a limited-run series of bonus interviews over the next few weeks. Starting in August, we'll release a new one each Sunday. But listen carefully. Only Beast Inside members will have access to these. So head over to newabnormal.thedailybeast.com to join now. Your Beast Inside membership helps support the great reporting at The Beast and podcasts like The New Abnormal. Thanks. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Al Gross, who is running as an independent in the state of Alaska against the evil Republican senator, Dan Sullivan. Rick Wilson cannot join us for this interview because of his involvement in the Lincoln Project. So I'm extremely excited about your Senate race. Can you just tell me, how did you get involved with politics? How did you decide to run for the Senate? Give us a little backstory about you. Sure. Well, as you probably know, I was born and raised in Juneau, and I grew up in a very political family. My father was the attorney general that helped create the universal basic income check, the permanent fund dividend, and the oil sovereign wealth fund, alongside our Republican legendary Governor Jay Hanson. Jay Hammond was a Republican. My dad was a Democrat, and uh, they were close friends and worked really well together for the future of Alaska, and it was never about partisanship. And uh, that's ultimately why I ended up registering as a nonpartisan independent when I turned 18. And my mom was also very engaged uh, in the state. She founded the Alaska League of Women Voters, was was the founding director of the United Fishermen of Alaska. Uh, She was the founding director of the Alaska European office in Copenhagen even. And so I grew up in a politically charged family and politics was always at the uh, dining room table. And I've been friends with the leaders of the state ever since since I was a young kid from Alaska's first governor with whom I was on a first name basis with when I was just four years old and Alaska's first senator, Ernest Greening, who, by the way, was Alaska's first doctor senator. I will be the second. I grew up literally right across the street from the state capitol. And so while I never expected that I would get into politics uh, at a young age, I felt very comfortable around it and have always been very interested in it. And certainly I've been very, very interested and personally invested in the future of Alaska. And when I saw Alaska failing economically and our country splitting apart more and more, and uh, after having gone to school, gone back to school and gotten a master's in public Public health and had made a name for myself statewide talking about the need for health care reform, I saw an opportunity to step up and take a leadership position for the state because Dan Sullivan 
as Alaska senator, in my opinion, was doing a terrible job representing Alaska and was not addressing the issues that Alaska needs to address in order to be successful into the future. And because I saw a pathway to win. What were you first, a commercial fisherman, an orthopedic surgeon or a uh, master's of public health? And how did those all fit together? (laughs) I started commercial fishing when I was 14. I had a lot of friends in a a small town nearby called Petersburg, who uh, Petersburg is a commercial fishing town with a Norwegian history to it. And a lot of my friends started fishing and it looked like a lot of fun. It looked like a great way to spend the summer and a good way to make money for college. So I tried to get a job on a larger boat as a deckhand, but because of my age and my lack of family connections, I was unable to um, get a position on a bigger boat. And so I talked my parents into co-signing a loan for me to buy my own boat. And because I had pretty much uh, lost the season because of the uh, mechanical breakdown, I was unable to pay off the bank loan. And so my mom and dad made me sell the boat in order to do that because a deal was a deal. A deal was a deal. I was heartbroken, but and I learned some really humbling lessons out of that. But I didn't let it get in the way, and I um, got back on another boat the following summer. And basically, for ten summers in a row, I worked my way all across the state of Alaska, including Bristol Bay, and and worked on a number of larger fishing boats, and ended up putting myself through college and medical school. And when I was in medical school, I ran out of time in the summers, and so I wasn't able to fish then. And then I came back to Juneau as an orthopedic surgeon, and. And again, was very, very busy for about 20 years. But when I went back to school and got my master's degree at UCLA, uh, I got an M- a master's in public health. I had my summers free. And so I got back into commercial fishing. I You're an independent? I am. Like I said, I registered as an independent when I was 18 because I've never been one for labels. And I can identify with certain aspects of the Republican Party and I can identify with certain aspects of the Democratic Party. And as a senator, I will caucus with the Democrats. The Republicans failed miserably when it came to any attempts to reform our health care system. And I believe the Democrats are motivated to improve the Affordable Care Act and come up with ways to uh, provide coverage at uh, a more affordable uh, rate for, for people. I want to get you on UBI because I feel like it's really, it feels like the future right now. And Alaska is was the first place to have it and has really had a lot of success with it. Um, can you talk a little bit about wh- how you see UBI working on a larger scale and, and what it was like living through? I mean, because that was pretty wild stuff. Well, I was actually on, a, on the best duck hunting trip of my life with my dad and Governor Jay Hammond just the three of us on my dad's boat when dad and Jay came up with the plans to create the, the permanent fund dividend. And there was some controversy in Alaska as to who would qualify for the UBI and how the UBI would be distributed. And it actually went uh, and was um, challenged in court. And so dad and Jay had to come up with a, um, a constitutional mechan- or a constitutionally correct method to distribute the money. It's been very, very successful here in the state and people love the program. It really brings funds into the economy and helps stimulate the economy in the fall, which is a good time of year to do that after tourism has left the state. Uh, it comes before Christmas, so people have money to buy uh, Christmas presents for their family members. And in parts of the state uh, where uh, there's not a lot of economic activity, it brings badly needed uh, funds to uh, people who, who really need it. So it's a widely liked program. And on a more national scale, as people are forced out of work 
we need to find a way to get to put money in their pockets so that they can afford to live. So I certainly think it has relevance on a national level, given our worldwide pandemic. So the dividend is one of the most interesting and unique concepts in America. But outside Alaska, it's relatively unique. Can you explain to our listeners why it has such a huge effect on Alaskans? Well, there are a lot of Alaskans who don't make very much money. People who live in rural Alaska um, are often uh, below poverty levels. And so getting a check from the government that is somewhere between $1,500 a year and $2,500 a year for every man, woman, and child in the state that registers for it is a big injection of funds. And if you've got a big family, that can amount to a lot of money, which um, can really translate into the ability to buy gas for your snow machines or buy gas for your skiffs so you can go hunting or fishing. And um, there are a lot of real practical applications up there. It's, uh, for many people, it's it's become a really important part of their uh, uh, economy. Alaska is so different. I mean, like the, sto- the great story is Lisa Mar- Markowski, she doesn't win the nomination and she wins as a write-in. So it seems to me like running in Alaska is completely different than running anywhere else in America. I'm curious to know, is that true? Am I wrong? And how are you running for Senate there? Well, it is very different. And I think uh, most people down South consider Alaska to be a, a deep red state. Uh, But people that live here don't believe that at all. It's a very, very independent state. I believe close to 60% of registered voters are registered as nonpartisan independent. And people uh, have a fierce sense of independence up here. And they often will split tickets. You know, Trump only won the state with 51% of the vote. It's not nearly as deep a Trump state as a lot of people uh, give it credit for to be. And a lot of uh, independents are, are successful politically in Alaska. Democrats are sometimes successful politically in the state as well. If you have the right message, you can win. And people don't like to be influenced by outside forces. They like uh, the federal government to uh, leave them alone or at least have the feeling that they're being left alone uh, by the U.S. government and the state government too, for that matter. And and it's certainly not nearly as red as most people give it credit How do you campaign there? Like, it's very spread out. What do you do? What's your campaign looking like? I mean, are you on a bus? Are you on a plane? Are you on a boat? Just want to know the brass tacks. I'm like fascinated by that. Well, it's it's a huge state. I believe we only have about 720,000 people spread out all across the state. And, you know, our campaign has changed dramatically since COVID-19 arrived. When I launched my campaign, uh, I had first gone on a listening tour all across the state. And I took my commercial fishing boat and really went all over the state listening to people before I even launched the campaign. And uh, once we launched the campaign, we based primarily out of Anchorage, uh, where I have been living for the last three years. Our focus initially was on fundraising. But with Zoom, uh, I'm sorry, with uh, COVID-19. That was the most telling <laughs> Freudian slip I've ever well, heard. <laughs> I, you know, ever since COVID-19, hit, we've been we've had to dramatically change our approach. And reaching out to voters has been very different. And initially, we did a lot of teletown halls. Uh, the very first one we did had almost 20,000 participants all across the state. And that, that was primarily focused on, on public health. It was right after COVID had come out and there was a great deal of interest in our campaign because, of course, I'm a doctor. And we have done a lot of Zoom events. 
I've been on the radio all across the state. B, what do you think you could do in Congress that would, I mean, it must be just infuriating to see what's happening right now in America. What is sort of your focus? Well, I stepped up to do this because Alaska was failing economically, and I saw a pathway and a mechanism to bring jobs and a future to the state. And, of course, the issues that I'm speaking to here in Alaska are big national issues as well, the high cost of health care the high cost of pharmaceuticals, and really addressing a lot of the injustices in in this world. And uh, since I stepped up to do this, President Trump continues to divide the country more and more, and issues regarding racial and social injustice are uh, more relevant than ever on a national scale. And so as a senator, I would like to work to address those as best I can. And I have a lot to learn on these issues, but I'm willing to listen, and I'm excited to to do that. To that end, so like, what are the complaints most Americans Americans have is who they vote for doesn't really change their lives. How would having your voice there as opposed to your opponents be beneficial to your constituents' lives? Well, my opponent has done virtually nothing other than the status quo uh, here in Alaska to come up with uh, new ideas to bring Alaska uh, into a successful future. He has voted repeatedly against the Affordable Care Act and has never put forward any ideas to make it stronger and better and more affordable. Uh, He has come up with no other ideas as to how to lure businesses uh, to the state. And as you know, the high costs of health care are eroding into our middle class and and are responsible for wage stagnation across the board in labor and education and public safety. And all these dollars are getting funneled into health care rather than increased wages. Uh, so these are issues that are very relevant on a national level. And as a doctor, I'm very excited to take a leadership role and to uh, help get a public option across the, the finish line. I want to be the doctor that gets that done. <laughs> Jesse and I are both like want to move to Alaska and vote for you. That's awesome. Yeah. When I was on the campaign trail prior to COVID-19, the biggest issues that I heard from Alaskan voters was that they were fed up with partisanship and that they lost faith the election system because of campaign finance. The people don't feel that their vote matters or counts anymore, which is ironic, really, because so many elections in Alaska come down to one or two votes. Uh, very close elections are, are common up here. So it's unfortunate that people really do believe that. But I think as a U.S. senator, I would really want to work towards restoring confidence uh, in our election system and to reform our campaign finance system so that people's vote really does does matter and, and elections can't be bought. How is Alaska ready for this election? Because I know there's a lot of fuckery going on with the mail and you have a lot of rural communities and you also have this crazy time difference. So can you talk about that? <laughs> well, the crazy time difference, you're all going to have to stay up late to see <laughs> Alaska turns out. But unfortunately, we may not know the results of the election until possibly a week after the election because of the high number of absentee ballots. And, you know, Alaska has a long history of fair elections. And I know the director of elections here in Alaska. She and I uh, went to kindergarten together all the way through high school. And I've taken care of her her family uh, as a doctor for a number of years in Juneau. And I trust that Gail will, to the best of her abilities, supervise a very fair 
their election. But people are, of course, concerned about whether their absentee ballots will show up in time. Uh, So far, I don't believe that that's going to be a problem. But if Trump continues to try and meddle with the U.S. Postal Service, it potentially could be. Yeah, it's really so scary. Can you tell us where people could find you on the Internet? Yeah, my website is dralgrossak.com. Rick Wilson, let's get to our one segment. What is our one segment, Molly? What is our one segment? <laughs> are we are we ever going to tire of this joke? Our producer is tired of this joke. I'm sure the producer is, but the American people love it. That's right. So who is your fuck that guy? My fuck that guy today is Congressman Clay Higgins. Congressman cool. Higgins of Louisiana. Of course. He's been posting a series of things that have now been removed from the Facebook. By him or by Facebook? Oh, no, by Facebook. Wow. You know how bad it has to be for Facebook, to the, the nexus of misinformation? Yeah, for, for, for fascist book to actually post up and say, oh, too much. Right. It's got to um, be pretty bad. Yeah. Clay Higgins put out a photograph of black demonstrators carrying guns, at a pro- legally carrying guns by the way, which it's okay for the boogaloos, right? right? And I'm a Second Amendment believer, so I believe that African-Americans who are protesting, if they choose to exercise their Second Amendment right in a legal and safe way, well, God bless America. But Clay Higgins, for some reason, has no problem with the boogaloos and no problem with these guys with AR-15s in the state capitals, but he loses his fucking shit when African-Americans are carrying firearms in a legal and safe way. Uh, He posts this thing on Facebook, and I'm just going to read you a little bit of it. Look, fair warning. If this shows up, we'll consider the armed presence a real threat. We, the people of Louisiana, one-way ticket, fellas, have your affairs in order. Me, I wouldn't even spill my beer. I'd drop any 10 of you where you stand, because some of we, like me, we are SWAT. Nothing personal. We just eliminate the threat. Okay, bro. Oh, Jesus fucking Christ. Being a shit talker in politics is a universal standard. Everybody in politics talks some shit. But Clay, you post pictures of African-Americans, then you write this long spank bank entry in your erotic diary, your fucking erotic fan fiction of of wanting to shoot black people. Go fuck yourself. Fuck that guy. Yeah, that was a good one. I mean, he's... Yeah, he's Jesus Christ. All he right, bought so the ticket. He gets to take the ride. My fuck that guy is Ernst and Barr, not to be confused with Ernst and Young, which includes Joni Ernst, the absolute. She's gone from being like, I guess there was some fantasy that she was a moderate. She has now become sort of the queen of Trumpville. Like she's, I would say she's like Martha McSally. She's gotten very Trumpy. She recently just started questioning the coronavirus death numbers and um, she's facing a really steep reelection. She's also, um, she's just completely on the Trump train and she's, she's proven herself to be a vehicle of everything Trump touches dies. I mean, look, Iowa should not be a bad race for for her this year. She came into it without, and it didn't look like a complete disaster, um, but it has gotten tighter. And so the last survey in, in Iowa had Trump only plus two. The DMR poll back in June had Trump plus one, uh, which is a damn good survey. Iowa is a very, very tight race right now. And so Joni Ernst is not prospering because, in part, Trump is not in the state that 
that is where it was, you know, four years ago. Greenfield has run a really good campaign and she's done a brought herself up from basically nothing. Ernst has outspent her, but she's slightly ahead in most of the surveys. It's a tie ball game. And maybe if you're in a tie ball game in an old state full of old people that's very old and also elderly, and also has people who are staring into the great void, which consumes us all at the end of our days, and also who are in nursing homes. You should take maybe the virus saying, oh, that kills old COVID people. Isn't a, yeah. Right. Maybe call me crazy. But no, I'm with you on your fuck that guy. Yeah. And then my other fuck that guy is Bill Barr, who will literally die on all the hills to protect President Trump. And yesterday he gave that weird, weird Wolf Blitzer interview where he said that, I mean, just weird stuff. And he refused to say that you couldn't vote more than once, which was a very strange moment in television. I have to say that is not a moment you want to have on your uh, on your whole attorney general copybook, um, yes. because it makes you seem like you're less of an attorney general and more of authoritarian thug enabler. I think that's a fair. I think that's a fair thought. fair assessment. A fair assessment. On that note, we'll wrap up this episode of The New Abnormal from The Daily Beast. In future episodes, we'll be talking with smart folks from The Daily Beast and beyond from media, culture, politics, and science, who will help us understand what's happening to our country and the world. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and share the show on social media. We're just getting started and don't want you to miss an episode. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm Molly Jongfast, and he's the Rick Wilson. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again on the next episode.